Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Derek Kunskin, author of The House of Sticks, published by Solaris Books, August 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks, it's great to be here. Okay, so this is the first in a series of books that are planned, is that correct? Yeah, it's the first in a duology, so mm -hmm. I see two books in this story to tell tell it correctly. Okay, and it's hard science fiction? Yeah, yeah, I tend to write hard science fiction. I, uh, I'm a sense of wonder junkie, which means I, I really enjoy in my science fiction just seeing other places, other other worlds, the way the universe is, is, you know, just different and wondrous and marvelous. And so Venus is where I was looking for this story. Now, considering, you know, as a writer, you have a ton of ideas bubbling. Um, how did this one, and, and not a pun on Venus or anything, but how did, <laughs> how did this one rise to the top? <laughs> um, I had written uh, a story and had it published in Analog in 2014. It was called Persephone Descending, which was a survival story basically set in the clouds of Venus. And I really enjoyed the sort of political elements to it because I had put basically Quebecois separatist colonists in there. Mm -hmm. um, and it, when I wrote my first novel, The Quantum Magician, I had taken a bunch of elements from a bunch of different short stories that I'd already had published. And among them was I wanted to include the the sort of empire that would eventually come from Venus. And so after I'd had two books written in that first series, I decided to go back and, and talk a bit about uh, look look a bit about the family saga that had launched that empire. Mm -hmm. Okay. And why so Venus isn't that popular in the science community as other you know planets? Mm -hmm. um, what why Venus? How did that? How did Venus draw you to it? I don't know. I think I kind of like the uh, the outsiders and stuff. I mean, yeah, Mars has been well treated by sci-fi, and I think you've got your, your Jupiter moons and everything else, but not a lot of people do a lot with Venus. And so it was. I felt it was someplace I wanted to explore just because I hadn't seen it in fiction a lot. Mm -hmm. I know Pamela Sargent wrote a series of books in the 90s uh, dealing with Venus, but other than that, I didn't know of too much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so tell us a little bit about this book, the protagonist, uh, more of the setting and, and the politics and that sort of thing. So Venus is way too hot and way too much pressure to live on the surface, but the clouds are so thick that um, at about 55, I think, or 52 kilometers above the surface, there's an area in the clouds where the pressure and the temperature both allow for water. And so scientists have said for a while that, you know, you could have floating colonies there. The colonists I sent there, like the, the problem with Venus too is that you're not going to get a lot of metals. If you live in the clouds, I mean, there's not much mining you can do. And so in the end, it's, it's a bit of a dead end. And the, the colony was very poor. And, um, about 28 years before this story happened, uh, there was a couple who was going to have a baby and it, it was a Down syndrome child. And uh, the, the colony said, we don't have medical resources for this. So just abort your child. And the couple didn't want to. And so they went to, basically free range it and they raised their family in the the lower clouds living off of the venusian plants and stuff mm -hmm. um that float in the clouds among many others who are sort of these you know free rangers sort of you know outsiders wanting to get away from the government mm 
and so this this there's a, a set of brothers and sisters who who are the stars of the story and uh, they discover a storm on the surface of venus which shouldn't be there and so that's what sets events into motion mm-hmm. but but really the 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 main drama is around the brothers and sisters and and you know the the sort of uh, debt the family is carrying around uh from from the original decision by their parents to just forego living among the regular colonists. Mm-hmm. So how much, um, so how science fictiony is it, you know, do the, the technology that they use, it almost sounds as you describe it, you know, colonialist or, you know, maybe medieval. I don't know why, but. So I, I, in my first couple of books, there was a lot of quantum um, mechanics and, you know, far out stuff like that. In this one, it's about 200 years in the future. So th- to live in the clouds of Venus, you need basically technology like dirigibles, a little bit like submarines. You need solar cells. You need other stuff. So a lot of it is, is stuff that would be around here quite easily. The problem is when you, when you mix that with, you know, sulfuric acid in the clouds and, you know, low, low metals, you end up with a lot of, you know, jury rigged equipment and stuff like that. And so the about 65 kilometers above the surface is a clear area where you're mostly above the sulfuric acid. And that's where most of the colonies, uh, colony has its dirigibles and stuff like that. But, uh, the other ones live lower with, and, and I, I dug into sort of my my plant biology nerd because I was a molecular biologist uh, in university. Hmm. And so um, I had buoyant plant life that lives, you know, further in the depths where it gets really hot and high pressure. Mm -hmm. So it is um, the technology is kind of something I guess I'm trying to figure out what the aesthetic of the book. um, Yeah, I um, I would say it is a colonist story. I would not say they're rich. I would say that they are, um, you know, more advanced tech. But I mean, a lot of what you can do, you know, you can have airplanes, you can have dirigibles, you can have, you know, radios, you can have, you know, tattoos and all these other things you can do with normal culture. It's just I was also working with a bit of a poverty element to it as well and a sort of you know, DIY, DIY uh, thing where, you know, you're, you're sort of using some of the Venusian plants and trying to adapt those as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it sounds like the plants have a major part in the story, like the, the, the botany aspect. Because Venus doesn't have any aliens per se, like, you know, that one would speak to, mm-hmm. um, the plants do take the role of, you know, they're, they're the sort of representative life form in, in the clouds of Venus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fun to try and see what, uh, I tend to believe that, you know, as we move out into space, you know, let's say we set up colonies in asteroids or on the moon or on Mars, I think there's a lot of hardwired stuff in our instincts, things that we expect to see, you know, green trees, for example, or green grass or green something. Mm. Um, we expect to touch the ground. We expect the wind to blow by us. But I mean, if you have to stay in a space suit or an environmental suit all the time, if you never touch the ground, if you never see green, like what does that do to your psychology? And I think there was, there was a bit of, I wanted to examine what it would be like to have that sort of disconnect from your environment and 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 venus provides that because yes a couple of them can go to the surface 
but I mean, they have to go in a bathyscape and, you know, they can only be down for about an hour because it's, it's uh, super hot and, you know, the pressure will only allow you down for so long. And, and so, yeah, I was, there's no aliens per se, but the plants have, um, they're the representative role there as people try and adapt. Mm -hmm. And so you also explore, do people go mad or, or lose? Yeah. It it sounds like you also explore, like you just said, that, that sort of thing. Does that have a prominent place in the, in the novel? Which the, the, the the sort of, the psych the psychological aspects and, and yeah well i mean let's say you know the colony's been there 40 years and so all of the 20 and 25 year olds were born there they have parents who would have told them about earth they would have pictures of earth occasionally they're going to get you know videos and movies and stuff lasered from earth and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i mean there's a sense of really being far away and and i think every like lots of people at some point in their life look for a connection to something and and part of the story where you've got this family that's been fractured is, you know, everybody's looking for their own connection. Sometimes it's internal, sometimes it's external. One of the characters, his his girlfriend, is 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 really looking in a religious sense for a connection to Venus. And she she's basically starting a cult of like and and how do you she's looking for a way to to bring Venus to life, to give it a soul, and she's thinking about, you know, the ways that, you know, earth became a living planet and she's faced with this this venus that's not a living planet and so there's there there is a lot of the, that kind of questioning i think philosophical psychology in in the in some of the questions that they ask themselves i mean that's not what the the story is about but i mean that's that's there as an important element i think that i wanted to think about what the experience would be of just living in some place where every time you go outside you have to be in an environmental suit that you literally never touch the atmosphere, except when it burns through your suit and manages to acid your skin. I'm speaking with Derek Kunskin, author of the house of sticks. You can find more information on his work at DerekKunskin.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it. If you can, please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So how much um, is Earth just way in the background in the story, or is there does Earth intrude much no no it doesn't i've kept the story like the the story itself was contained to venus Mm -hmm. um yeah Hmm. interesting but it sounds like earth has its own backstory in in this setting yeah yeah i think like i mean earth is is sending out its own you know uh, there are nations on earth sending out people and and companies really uh to to colonize Mars, the asteroids, the moon, and so on. And the the problem that these particular colonists have is that by the time Quebec became a nation, many of the prime spots for, you know, sort of space exploration were taken up. And so, you know, sort of as a proving ground uh, for this new nation, they decided, well, we're going to colonize Venus, which is not a great idea. But, you know, politically, you can see why a new nation would want to have some sort of legitimacy that way. And, and look at these sort of, you know, nationalistic, uh, sort of, um, accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what, um, 
What research did you have to do for the book? Oh, I, I spent a lot of time reading uh, books about, you know, the planetology of Venus. I looked into the acid chemistry. Um, luckily, I used to be um, an air cadet, which in Canada is like, uh, it's like a citizenship group that, uh, you know, is, is flavored after the Air Force sort of thing, but for teenagers. Mm-hmm. And so I already knew a fair bit about airfoils and, you know, airplanes and aerodynamics and stuff like that. But I have pilot friends that I went and asked lots of questions to, and I had to learn about pressure for when you have different levels of the clouds and stuff. Um, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. But again, it, I think it was the, 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 the family dynamics that was, uh, was one of the key features, but don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I loved, you know, there's nothing like looking up a, a U.S. geological survey map of Venus and looking at the different mountains and the discovering what their volcanoes look like and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So without um, revealing any, any spoilers or anything, um, as you did your research, did you come across some, any science that forced you to alter sort of what happened in the story? I'm not sure I did because I, I mean, let's say like the, the, the father and son do go down to the surface. I'm not going to say more than that, but I mean, they do have an old bathyscape. I had to figure out, you know, what, what kind of metals would survive, uh, how thick would they have to be and so on? What kind of pressures would they need to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it was, it was just fun. I think it was, it, it was working with science that was a lot closer to, what I, what, what we're at now. But the, the other thing is, I mean, science fiction, you can occasionally hand wave things mm-hmm. and readers will, will, will tolerate that. Mm-hmm. I think the kind of thing I was trying to do was I was trying to be as faithful as I could to the, you know, the science itself and give people, a, a as plausible a, a, a story as I could. Mm-hmm. So what are the, some of the things, um, in say sci-fi fantasy and horror either books, movies, shows, what have you, um, that generally inspire you? I really enjoy, um, there's, there's two authors in science fiction. I enjoy a, a, a good chunk of their work. One is Alistair Reynolds, um, and one is Stephen Baxter. I have read some Ian Banks and I don't care for all of it, but he's got one story called the, uh, one novel called the algebraist, which is just amazing. Hmm. Um, like stunning. And in fantasy, I really like the epic fantasies of uh, Stephen Erickson mm-hmm. and uh, R. Scott Baker. Um, they're quite good, uh, like, but they're big <laughs> novels. Mm-hmm. On horror, I don't read as much. Mm-hmm. And I was just recently uh, reading Salem's Lot, and I didn't finish it before I had to give it back to the library. Mm-hmm. So I've put it on order again because a friend of mine and I, we want to book club it. So I'm going to, I'm going to finish it. Okay. I'm hoping that everything goes okay and it ends with a wedding, but my friend says not to hold my breath for that. <laughs> um, so how about just entertainment in general, any other, you know, writing or media or, or that sort of thing that you enjoy? Uh, I do enjoy comic books. Mm-hmm. I have always been a comic book writer since I was 10 years, uh, sorry, re- reader since I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm currently rereading, the entire X-Men story from 1963 on because I gave it up like in the early nineties as most people did. Um, and I, I've only recently gotten back into it. Um, and so I thought, well, let's, let's give this a try. And I'm blogging about it on blackgate.com. Uh, so far I'm, I'm about six months in. Um, and I think there's lots and lots of great comics out there. Um, 
And uh, TV, I really, really enjoyed Westworld. Uh, three seasons are out, and I'm looking forward to uh, Umbrella Academy Season 2 mm-hmm. coming up. Uh, I'm trying to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I've, I'm have i like halfway through Season 3, which was... I only got to Season 4 last time I tried watching it. And, you know, I, the thing is I get bored with something usually after about two seasons, so... Huh. And then you just shelve it. Yeah, basically... Yeah. I'm surprised at how many people um, start something and don't like it, but feel like they have to finish it and trudge <laughs> through it. Yeah, I'm not that guy. Yeah, yeah. Neither am I. Um, so if uh, if this book had, say, a soundtrack, uh, what do you think it would be? Oh, I, I was writing it in 2016, so I was listening to a lot of what whatever was on the radio in 2016, so I imagine there's... A- you know, like whatever was there, weekend, Katy Perry, you know, that sort of thing. And so, but that's totally not appropriate. Like I was writing it in a library while my son was at work, was at school. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, um, I was just using that to have white noise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was good enough to get the job done, I think. Mm-hmm. So, but if it were, if it were a movie, does the book, what kind of feel, does it have a slow moving feel or is it like frenetic or? Can can I say John Williams composes it? Sure. Okay, then I'm going to go for that because who doesn't want John Williams, uh, <laughs> you know, scoring your movie? Yeah. So kind of a space opera, space fantasy kind of thing going on. I think there's a lot of uh, I think there's a lot of scenes in it that are that are elevated in the sense that there's there's something really striking about the environment itself. Like it really is a different environment like the clouds they change and shift they change colors like i mean venus is a weird place because let's say it's noon on venus mm-hmm. uh, where you are and you're down 20 kilometers into the clouds and uh you know the sun will be kind of you you won't see much of it because uh, the light is being scattered mm-hmm. and so you're you're it's going to look a little like sunset and yet if you were on the opposite side of the planet in what would supposed to be daylight uh, darkness you know, it's still kind of glowy around because the sunlight is being scattered through this incredibly thick um, uh, atmosphere all the way to the other side. And I mean, even stuff like when you get down to the surface of Venus, it is so hot and so uh, so much pressure that carbon dioxide actually behaves kind of like a gas, kind of like a liquid. And so it's almost like an ocean there of carbon dioxide. And you've got um, it's so dry there that the the rocks themselves are drier than any rocks we've got in any of our geological formations. So they're very stiff. And so you you can have very tall mountain slopes. And at the same time, there's no rain. There's no wind to speak of, really. Um, and so you don't have erosion happening. And so, I mean, there's there's lots and lots of places where the characters you know, are, are in their environment and it's natural for them or they're seeing new things. And it's just like, I would feel that there's a big feel to that. That's part of the sense of wonder. And that's why I think a score of that kind might really suit. It's, it's like you're flying over the Rockies or something. That's the kind of score you would have with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds pretty fascinating. That imagery you just described. Oh, oh and that's only part of it. It's <laughs> so much, to, you know, wicked, wicked stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as far as your writing process, is there anything you would identify as sort of out of the ordinary as far as writing drafts or completing it or, or any aspect of the process? 
For this one, I, I think me as a writer, I had a lot of my early failures by just writing by the seat of my pants. And, and I know there's a lot of writers who do that and they find their way and it really works for them, but it's never worked for me. And so I think some of the most crushing sort of things you can feel is like in my early times, I wrote a novel and then like, I can't do anything with it because the ending didn't land. So I've since, you know, for the last 15 years, I don't write anything until I, I plot out a fair bit of it. And, uh, and so, yeah, that I think is a quirk particular to me. I do very detailed outlines and then, and then start. And I, I, I sort of use that as a map. Like, you know, that from Ottawa to Toronto, you're going to pass these cities. I'll figure out what it's looking like as I drive along with my headlights in the dark. That's the writing process. But I mean, I do know I'm going to hit, you know, Cornwall, Kingston, Belleville, Trenton, Coburg sort of thing Mm -hmm. all on the way to Toronto. Okay. So in the editing process for this book, did you or your editor want to take out, did you take out any large segments? You know, did you write a lot and have to cut it down? This one came to about, I think it was 120,000 words, which is a sizable novel. And I sold, like it sold to Solaris and then it also sold to Analog Magazine who wanted to serialize it. And I'm super proud of that because I mean, they were the people who first serialized Dune before it came out in book form. They serialized Ender's Game before it came out in book form. So this is the second novel of mine that they've serialized. Um, for them, they're focused more on the science. And so the editing process with them was taking out some scenes to make it work a little better because it had to be cut into three parts for three different magazines. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we added a few things in and then for the other editor, the book editor, they asked me to do different stuff. So we left all that other stuff. I just mentioned that we cut out, we left that in and we added a few more things. So the, the two versions are slightly different because they had two different editors for two different purposes. Hmm. And, and that was an interesting experience because the previous time I'd been serialized in analog, the analog editor asked for, you know, an extra bit of backstory on the, basically the big bad. And so I added an extra 6,000 words and the Solaris editor liked it. And so we, you know, both versions were virtually identical. I think the analog version took out some swearing. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, this one, this one, the editing process became a little different and, and each editor asked for something slightly different. So how does that work as a book? It's divided into, you know, different chapters when it's serialized. Mm -hmm. Are they putting in just clumps of chapters or is it one long chapter that's chapters combined? So analog is great. And I think what they do for, for all the serializations I've seen is they basically cut a book into three. And, and they're looking for, you know, 35,000 to 30 to 35,000 words per chunk so that it reads and it paces well. And so when we, when we chopped up mine, the editor noticed that there were a bunch of scenes that really made sense to be at the front. There were a bunch of scenes that really made sense to be at the back, but in the middle, when you took away the rest of the book and just had it for that middle section, he realized it didn't read well for serialization. And so we, we had to make some changes on the middle part for that. So that was a pacing experience that I had never experienced before in terms of like a a challenge that I I had not seen, seen before. It was neat. Mm -hmm. It's been many years since I read the, I've read science fiction magazine. So I forget how, you know, the approaches they take. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate. There's so much good writing out there, but there's, 
a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, there's no way to read all of it. I mean, I know a few people in the industry who read everything, but they're the people who do the year's best books and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's their job. So yeah, they have yeah. the time in a sense where they make the time. Yeah. It, but even at that, I'm not sure they would read everything. Like at some point there's gotta be some magazines where you're like, this is, you know, they circulated 50 copies. Am I going to read it? Maybe not sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then I guess one day we'll have the intelligent robots that do all the reading and tell us what the best <laughs> stuff is. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So how has your approach to writing changed over time? I think I've made, I, I, I now make better first drafts than I used to. And maybe that's not so surprising. I mean, I've, I'm probably up to about a million and a half, two million words I've written in my life now. So, but I, I feel that there's like, even, now I get commissioned to do stories sometimes by, by some of my Chinese editors. Hmm. And, um, you know, they'll say we need a new year story or, and it needs to be 3000 words. And I mean, where I used to like not have anything, you know, now I can, I can write to, to order sort of. And, and I mean, I was uh, commissioned for, for writing two Chinese stories where they flew me over to look at different things in China and, and try and be a little bit like a futurist and then write science fiction based on that. And that was really interesting. And it like, it's almost like a writing prompt, but yeah, I mean, just there's a, there's a certain confidence that I feel I'm getting now that most of what I write is going to be okay and improvable. Whereas there's stuff that I used to write, which was unimprovable and it wasn't okay. So mm -hmm. it's like, you know, thank goodness, at least I hope those days are, you know, in the rear view mirror. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some of your non writing work. Is there other non writing work that you've done that's influenced how or what you write? I was a foreign service officer like in the early two thousands and I worked with refugees and I worked uh, like uh, anti people smuggling and stuff like that. That was interesting. I don't, I think the, the refugee work and the work with street kids that I did even before I joined the government was, it did influence some stories. It didn't influence this one here. I think, uh, I'm, I'm 10th generation Acadian Quebecois on my mother's side and so that's the reason I put the, the Quebecois in this story. And it's just because of a, a love of home and a love of the sort of rural community where my mother, like my mother's maternal village is, um, that I still go back to every year. And I, I think that informed a lot of the feel of the story. I mean, there's, I, I, I was trying to, to put people I could imagine being in my family in that story. And that was really fun to do and to take some of the Quebecois culture and put that there too and imagine what it would be like in 250 years, uh, you know, because Quebec has a very strong culture, but uh, obviously there are, you know, every culture has its strengths and its insecurities and its confidences and so on. And it's, it's history and it's, it's scars from its own history. Mm -hmm. And it was fun to try and imagine how all of those things would play out in uh, a country or sorry, in a country that became a new country 200 years in the future and, and, and was trying to prove itself. Mm -hmm. So yeah, not so much work, but on that side, yeah, the, the sort of family culture side. So I know we talked about sort of a soundtrack for the book, but in the book itself, do you um, go into uh, music, you know, do any of the characters play music? You know, like I, when you mention, I think of a Cajun music is what, kind of popped mm -hmm. into my mind as you were 
talking and describing that. I'm not a very musical person, and so I didn't put that in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one of the the life forms in that lives in the clouds is basically a garlic shaped hollow thing that got all the buoyancy, and then hanging down from there is basically like a plumb line. And it's like, let's say 40, 60 meters long. And as it goes through the clouds, it picks up static electricity and that's the way it gets its, its energy. That's the equivalent of a photosynthesizer, but on Venus. Hmm. And I said that in the clouds, sometimes when the winds and storms are coming, because they have different lengths of, of, let's say, that cable that hangs underneath them, they're going to vibrate at different frequencies and they're going to make different sounds like moaning. And I, have one of the characters or several of the characters know, you know, just realize that it's it's like a, a bit of a chorus, a, a long chant, mm-hmm. um, and and the character who you know is is sort of forming her own cult is like, wow, they're you know, they're singing to Venus, they're worshiping Venus in their own way. These these plants that are floating through the clouds, picking up static electricity, but humming as as they they resonate with the wind. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds druidic. This religion. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, very much. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, I, I love science and I love what you're describing the exploration of what would it be like on another planet like this. So it's just really cool to listen to you describe it. Is there, this is a bit of a whimsical question. Uh, when you were younger, was there any power technology or fictional setting that you yearned for or to be part of? I used to dream a lot of going to Barsoom to being one of those people that, you know, had a sword and fought green Martians and, you know, rescued princesses and stuff. You know, when I was reading Edgar Rice Burroughs and that would have been like what, when I was 11, 12, 15 sort of thing. And, you know, I think Pulp Fiction worked very well for young teenage boys who had, you know, who were nerdy and had power fantasies and stuff like that, that, you know, that, that somewhere else you can be somebody else and be recognized. I think that's sort of the central conceit as well of, of superheroes, right? I mean, you, you, you have the sort of Shazam, Billy Batson, and nobody really knows how cool he really is. And, you know, they'll never be able to say, and same with Spider-Man. And so John Carter of Mars was that for me, I think as well. And obviously I, I read superheroes, but yeah, yeah. no, that's going way back now. <laughs> cool. Okay. I'm speaking with Derek Kunskin, author of the house of sticks you can find more information on his work at DerekKunskin.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, ChrisAlvarez.com or FullContactNerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at HistoryRabbitHole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So you explained, so you already talked a little bit about the, um, getting this book written, but where that seems pretty, uh, smooth process. Um, but did you have any difficulties finishing it up or, or getting it published in for any reason? No, no. I like my agent is, is, uh, pretty much my first reader. And, um, so we, we worked it for a couple of months, uh, after I'd given a, a much better draft, I think. And then we showed it to, uh, my current editor at, at Solaris and they immediately loved it and said they would like to take it. And, uh, 
that, that was it. And then they seemed to feel it was a good idea to take it. And I got a Publishers Weekly starred review, which was not at all what I expected to happen with a hard sci-fi book. But um, the the review talked about how the, the real charm was was not just the world building, but the politics and the family saga element of it, too. Mm-hmm. Do you worry about deadlines as you write? Are you a pretty productive writer? Or? I I write well ahead of time usually, so deadlines shouldn't be a worry. But um, I I wrote this while I was off for four years from work, mm-hmm. and now I'm back at work, and you know a full time job is a full time job. So I'm writing only in the mornings, let's say between seven and eight, and it's you know not as fast as anything else. And I have the third quantum book to deliver in January of 2021, and so. I'm not struggling with it, but I'm noticing it's July and it's only half written. So mm-hmm. I think I would like to probably accelerate that process a bit. And I'm going to have to do some thinking about how to do that. So if you have a, a, a thought about the book, you know, a scene maybe that pops in your head, do you, are you, mm-hmm. do you note that down or do you maybe record it, vo- you know, voice uh, or? Yeah, I take a lot of notes in notebooks that I carry around. And so I'll often, my creative process is often asking myself questions like, you know, what would be the most, what would make the most sense here? What would be the most surprising? What would be the most unexpected? You know, why is so-and-so doing this? And then I would make a page of notes. And at the end of that page of notes, maybe there's two or three, you know, valuable bits that I would then incorporate into the outline. Mm-hmm. I also listen to a lot of podcasts and I listen to, you know, books on, on Audible and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and so if I'm driving and I've got a great idea, then, you know, the next time there's an occasion to stop, I'll pull over and then, you know, type in my phone in an email to myself what it is that I need. And then, you know, take off my four way flashers and then back onto the road. (laughs) So you are finishing this project. Do you have other, any other writing projects you might want to mention or is this? Well, I've got the, I've got the two quantum uh, books, quantum magician, quantum garden. They're out. Mm -hmm. So this one is coming out in August in ebook and audio. The hardback has been put off till April just because COVID scrambled a lot of people's, you know, the printers, the distributors and so on. So um, the hardcover will be coming out in April and then a soft cover will be coming out, I think, a little later. I think in August is August of next year. Mm-hmm. But um, most of my readers seem to be audio or ebooks anyway. So it, it may not have that much of an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next quantum book, which I believe is going to be called The Quantum War, is going to be coming out in 2021. Mm-hmm. And then I have the second House of Sticks books, which will be called The House of Saints, which will come out in 2022. And I, um, my, edit, my editor bought a novella from me that's set in the same universe, and they're, they're deciding when to publish that. And I've got a story in Asimov's right now, and... Yeah. Yeah. Like lots of little and big things coming out and it's, uh, it's, it's all good. It's, it's very exciting. So you mentioned that a lot of your readers are audiobook listeners. Um, Mm -hmm. do you ever speak your, what you've written out loud to see how it sounds to the ear rather than, you know, to the mind's eye? I really, really should, but I don't because it's a slow process and it's exhausting, you know, moving your, like to, to read something out loud for a long time. Like you can see why the voice actors are so skilled. I, you know, I can't do it. Um, and it's a slow process. Whereas I think just reading, I really should now, now you've made me feel like, Oh, you know, I wish I'd answered that question differently, but I have to be honest and say, you know, I'm not doing this one thing that would probably make my writing better. 
Well, I'll say the onus should be on uh, maybe the editor or, or your agent to, <laughs> you know. Uh, they're both wonderful. Like, um, yeah, no, my agent is is a wonderful, wonderful creative and business partner, and uh, my editor is is fabulous. So, yeah, I can't I can't put anything on them when it really it's me that should be doing that work. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm just joking around there. Oh no, no, I know. It's it's. I just wanted to to make a point that they're great. Good, good. Um, so where can people find you online? You have social media or website? Yeah. Um, my website is just derekkunskun.com. So it's exactly as it's spelled .com. Mm -hmm. And my Twitter is exactly the same thing. Derek Kunskun, uh, with an ad at the front, no spaces. Mm -hmm. And I blog every two weeks at blackgate.com. If anybody cares about my nerdiest, nerdiest thoughts on what's happening with the X-Men in 1975. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of people who actually would like to hear that. Um, but I'll spell your name for listeners. D-E-R-E-K-K-U-N-S-K-E-N. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I really just appreciate the chance to talk with you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. You. Asked, you asked a ton of questions that no other interviewer has asked me. That's good. That's good. Um well, yeah, I certainly, like I said, I, I really enjoyed uh, what you said and the imagery that you conjured up, so I appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com, that's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.